Gateway, good day to you. Today, we are setting out to touch on uncleanness and the way of Jesus. And I can't tell you, I have been waiting to deliver that little pun. For those of you who got that and are laughing, I'm right there with you. Uh, But without further ado, and on a more serious note, this is a teaching that I think we all need to hear at Gateway. I think we need to hear this, not just at Gateway, but in the city of Des Moines. And so if you would flip with me over in your Bibles to what we call the Old Testament, to Leviticus chapter 15, starting in verse 19. And this is going to be the first of a few stops that we make on our way over to the gospel according to Mark in in chapter 5. And we will get there. And this first part may feel a little abstract, but stay with me. Because Mark has in mind this holistic picture of Jesus, of a Jesus whose presence is actually the salve that our hurting wounds need in this moment. So if you're not there yet, Leviticus chapter 15, starting in verse 19, this is what we read. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, She shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And stop right there. I know that this can seem a little alarming at first, that this is the route we're taking, a first of a few stops on our way to the gospel, according to Mark. But notice this, that her uncleanness, it's like a shadow casting like its its gloom over the whole of her life. Everything she touches, everything she comes in contact with, it gains this same status as unclean. And this is such a vibrant, such a serious matter in in the Hebrew imagination, the life of the Israelites, that we go on to read more into this and and we see that the stakes get higher. Go, Go with me to verse 25 where we read this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And then, and then coming to a conclusion, down in verse 31, we read this. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by the defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So let me just remind us here that uncleanness, it's f- about far more than hygiene. I mean, the notion of hygiene, it's, it's not even on the scene when Leviticus is compiled. It's, it's nowhere to be found in the language for like another thousand years. So, so for the ancient Israelites, One's cleanness or uncleanness in this case, it directly shapes your communal and interpersonal life. At its worst, to to be unclean, it's to be cloaked in this shadow of death, reminding you of separation so that even the embrace of a friend or the kiss from those whom you love, like even those things are off limits. And understand these are hard words for us to hear, but I think that this moment, this moment in history is a unique vantage point that we have to actually have empathy for the unclean in this moment. I mean, at what other point in your memory or in my memory have we been able to say we can relate to isolation like this? 
I mean, whether you've been infected by the virus or not, like all of our lives have been touched by it. I mean, the whole gamut of isolation, loneliness and angst and listlessness and anger, the whole thing, we actually, we actually get that. All of that is caught up into the effects of being cast out as unclean. But it's God's word. Notice this. It's God's word in verse 31 that helps us to receive and, and actually begin to clarify this prohibition. And it's this. It's that my tabernacle is in their midst. And stay with me here. The tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tangible expression of God's presence and grace to the Hebrew people. A people who were just loosed from the grips of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. So so the tabernacle is the expression of God's love, his willingness to be with them in their suffering. And what becomes abundantly clear as the story of the scriptures unfold is that God's presence is both glorious and good, but it is also dangerous. It's it's like the sun. And you just ask this question, maybe this is silly, but is the sun good? Well, yes, the sun is good. By the sun, we are warmed. And, and by the sun and, and by the light of its rays, food grows in the earth, food that feeds us and creatures all around. Like we're nourished by it. We're flourished by the reality. We flourish because of the sun. It is good. But what happens when we're exposed to the sun? Well, if, if you're like me, you get burned. And if you, if you stay in the sun for prolonged periods of time, you can become sick. Even longer still, it will kill you. So is the sun still good? Yes. But it's also dangerous if you don't know the nature of the sun. So too, with God, like, this is the reality of God's goodness. And and yet the cynics in our hearts, they rise up in moments like this and, and they begin to say, well, how can limiting access be good? How can it be, how can God be good if a woman just by her biological processes alone is prohibited from coming to him, from being in his presence? That seems, that seems absurd. And I, f- I feel the impulse of that question, but I want to push back against that impulse if you, f- if you felt that rise up in your heart, because that is an impulse from the spirit of the world, not from the spirit of God. It's an impulse that says, freedom is only freedom when my access is unfettered and unregulated and without bounds. It's the impulse to define good and evil on our own terms. This impulse will consume us because it assumes too much of us. And perhaps marked by death, we waltz into the presence of God and are consumed, or we expose ourselves thinking we're greater than the, our energy's greater than the energy of the sun. Something asinine like that. But thanks be to God that Leviticus is a book of love language for the people of God. Because God knows his character. And he knows that his character is such that, that if people marked by death or signs of death, like blood, that if they come into his presence, they will be consumed. And so God, like out of his parental love for his children, he marks off these boundaries whereby they might flourish because he loves them. And to a much smaller degree, consider this. 
whether it's loving for me to let my toddler, my like impulsive little dude, to explore a pilot light or maybe to like run around our city's streets at his own discretion. No, that, that is negligible at best and unloving if we're honest. It's just straight up unloving. He doesn't have the faculties to decide when or when not to chase something into the street. I mean, you, you know me. He is my son. I am impulsive. And by the Spirit of God that is being transformed, Griffin, man, he like just runs after anything. So what is the loving thing to do? It is to set boundaries. In my parental love, I set boundaries so that he might flourish for the station that he is in. And we must see two things when we start out on our little journey to the gospel according to Mark here. First, we must see that uncleanness, it doesn't fit our neat little Western categories. It supersedes them. It's bigger than them. Because uncleanness and cleanness, it's not, it's not a sin issue. And we, we want to make it a, about that, but it's not a sin issue. This is about access. I mean, for example, if you were to have simply just touched a corpse, you would have been unclean. But then you just go through the ritual of washing and waiting, and you would then be clean and able to access God's presence. It's not a sin issue. It's an access issue. It's about who can and cannot come into God's presence. So we need to see that. And second, we need to see that the access granted is granted by way of the prohibition. <laughs> that, that these are, this is the language of love in Leviticus. But that only takes us so far. After all, remember that anyone who's pressed up against these circumstances, that they're not just cut off from community, they're, they're cut off from God's very personal presence, which is the life presence for the people of Israel. And there's a deep longing that's just sink, sunk within this text, a longing for restoration to come and touch down. This is stop one. For stop two, turn with me to numbers. So it's just a little bit to the right. Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37. We're going to read right down through verse 41, and this is what we read. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And at this stop on our way to Mark 5, the people of Israel, they're, they're in the wilderness. They're waiting for the fulfillment of their longings. They're longing to be in the land promised to their forefathers, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And right now, like when, when I said that they're waiting for the fulfillment of your longing, like how many of you just said, amen? A, a, like, yes, we, we, I want this place. I, I want that, God. Well, check this. 
It's at this point that the Israelites are then called to set before their eyes reminders of God's deliverance. It's the moment when the longing is the most intense, when you've been in the quarantine for the long haul, that your longings, they're fighting with you. And it's then that God gives to his people a set in front of your eyes the reminders of my faithfulness. I mean, just this last week, we, we asked this question when we were surveying Mark 5, 1 through 20, when was the last time that you marveled at the mystery of God? And we asked that question because right now, we need to remember God's deliverance. We, we need to remember that. Because so many of us, we, we're in the wilderness and we're longing. We're longing for God's fulfilled promises. And you know what some of us have begun to do is we've, we've started to just buck the system. We'll make our own way forward. We will decide. We will discern what is good and what is evil, where I can go and where I cannot go. What are the bounds of my flourishing? And we've neglected to wait on the Lord. And yet, there's a call here. I know, we're, we're not Israelites. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He is the fulfillment. Our true hope is in him, not in the law. Like, I get that. But there's an invitation here for us to heed. And what's really curious about this passage is, is where it's taking us. You see, the, the Hebrew people, they would hang these tassels, or uh, the Hebrew word for this, the language that the Old Testament was originally written in, is tzitzit. Go ahead and say that, tzitzit. I imagine you're all saying it now. Fantastic. And they would hang these tzitzit on, on the corner or the kanap of their prayer shawls. And so the command is to put the tzitzit on the kanap, and it would look like this. And we can even see this today. These are the prayer shawls that Orthodox Jews will wear. And, and they'll have their little prophylactory boxes, boxes up there, which contain little prayers, all these things. And um, we, we could see this. But remember, for the Israelites to wear these prayer shawls, it's not a fashion statement. No, this is a way for them to remember and to keep in front of their eyes God's loving boundaries. And so what that does then is that brings us to our next stop. That brings us to Malachi chapter 4. And so from where you are, just keep flipping right. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. Just go back to the left a little bit. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 4. And this is what we read, Malachi 4, 1 to 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. You're just thinking, man, the, the scriptures have some heavy words. Yeah, they do. Re reading on. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its rings. If you're following along in the NIV or, or you're reading the ESV, you may, you may have seen uh, that the, your translation says healing in its rays or healing in its wings. But in both spaces, the Hebrew word there is the word kanap. So here in this prophecy about the coming Messiah, the, the coming hope of Israel, we see that the son of righteousness, and another name for the Jewish Messiah, that there's healing in its wings for those who fear and revere God. 
And what emerges from this little messianic hope in Malachi there? In the span of about 400 years between Malachi and Jesus is this hope for healing, this hope for deliverance. Because remember, that's, that's, that's what that fixture is meant to call to mind, the deliverance of God. And so this hope begins to pick up steam in the, in the imagination, the sanctified imagination of the saints of God. And, and it picks up steam in the heart of Israel as they sit under the weight of oppression. And the hope sounds like this. If I can just reach out, if I can touch this knop, this prayer shawl, then there's healing to be had. And it's this hopeful expectation that has, it just lingers in the backdrop. And then it comes with us as we make our way to Mark chapter 5. So go ahead and make your way there with me. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. This is what we read. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Note that phrase there at the end, at the point of death. See, it's here that Jairus, he entrusts his daughter's last moments to Jesus. He's, he's like desperate for Jesus's presence. And specifically, not just in general, but specifically in the face of his daughter's impending death. That little turn of phrase would be idiomatic. You would, you would hear that and go, oh, she's knocking on death's door. That's, that's what they would hear. And there's much that could be said about this little moment. But, but let me just ask you, what are you desperate for? Where do you take your desperation? To whom or to what do you entrust your deepest anxieties? What is it? Is it self? Is it a bottle? Is it maybe just one more moment looking at that? Maybe it's just escaping. You're just so fed up with this moment that you're just living into a future and absent to the present. Where do you take those things? For this man, it's Jesus. It has to be Jesus. Certainly he's seen his ministry and he knows the miracles that have gone down. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 24 just says this. And he went with him. No pause, no hesitation. It's like Jesus is fearless in the face of death. And the verse goes on. It says this. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And the language here, it might miss you and me, but it's super powerful. It's this idea of the crowd pressing into the point of suffocation. And Mark, Mark is heightening the sense of urgency here. It's, it's, it's as if like when I read through this, it begins to push against my own chest. And then it's only compounded in verse 25, we read this, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And you're just like, what? Like, where did this no-name woman come from? What's her story? What's going on here, Mark? And we don't know. 
But what's clear is that something's caused this woman to bleed for 12 years. Mark doesn't tell us. He's not like inclined to give us many details. But what that means, what we know, is that she's been then separated. She's been unclean, untouchable for 12 years. She's been isolated. Could you imagine 12 years of quarantine? Like 12 more days and we're done. Like 12 years? Just think back to Leviticus 15, our first stop. She's been cut off from community, relationships, God's very personal presence. And that's not it. Look at verse 26. Speaking about the woman, she'd had this discharge of blood for 12 years and she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she has and was no better but grew worse. So if isolation is an unclean woman in a world where women are not given status, they're not elevated, if that's not enough, her physicians made it worse. And, and physicians in Jesus' day, they're more like magicians than anything else. And then this kind of a compilation of Jewish teachings called the Babylonian Talmud, we actually read about the treatment that women would receive for this condition. And we, we read this, and it, it says this, and excuse me if this is a little graphic for you, but it says, uh, she should be made to sit at a crossroads, hold up a cup of wine in her hand, and a man comes up from behind her, frightens her, and exclaims, cease your discharge. But if not, a handful of cumin and a handful of saffron and a handful of fenugreek are brought and boiled in wine, and she is made to drink it. And they say to her, cease your discharge. It's paragraph after paragraph that this goes on. At one point, there's a, a prescription for the cooking of dung, of like the, the, the dung of a mule as a remedy. She is no better off. The woman we meet, it's, she's cut off, she's broke, she's suffering, and the suffering is real. And in her desperation, where does she run? Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Come on. And immediately the flow of blood, it dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The presence of Jesus gives this woman the courage for the culturally audacious thing. It's Jesus' presence that gives her the courage for the culturally audacious thing. She's cut off, she is isolated, untouchable, and she does the unthinkable. I mean, church, come on. Like, what do you think she's thinking for over those 12 years? I imagine that she has scoured every teaching. I don't know if she can read or she can't, or she's just, she knows the Torah, like has it stored up in her heart, but perhaps she's, she's heard. She knows of every way that she might be loosed from her suffering. She's turned to these physicians, quote unquote. And then she sees and hears about Jesus. And no doubt Jesus, the Torah observant rabbi that he is, he would have been uh, like donning his prayer shawl, sit, sit, and all. 
And then this no-name woman comes up and does the unthinkable. She touches, she reaches out and touches Jesus's garment. And in doing so, she shines, she shines the light of the sun of righteousness into the darkness of her isolation. And she's healed. And then we read this in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples, I love this, they said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Just imagine the disciples like, I'm we, we, know the, we know who Jesus is here. Like Mark discloses his identity in Mark 1.1. This is the son of God. And so we're just, at this point, we start to feel bad for the disciples, which is Mark's literary genius because we're kind of like the disciples. But just imagine in this moment, uh, Jesus, you just cast out a legion of demons. That was kind of heavy. But now he's asking this question. Maybe he has like a little miracle fatigue. Maybe our boy just needs a break. But they don't get it. Jesus didn't ask who touched me. He asked who touched my garments. Because Malachi 4 is on the forefront of the page now. There's healing in his wings. There's there's healing in his canop. And Jesus wants to know who gets it. He, He wants to see who has the faith that has been so stirred up by his presence that they would reach out and touch his canop. Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, let those those three words break your heart. But the woman, the courage, the audacity, and it's Jesus's presence that holds the space for the unclean and the outcast to have courage in the face of power and oppression. That is what Jesus does. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. This posture of worship, veneration, and told him the whole truth. This woman who just, she had just broken all the rules. She's not permitted to come near a crowd, let alone to enter that crowd and then touch a religious person, Jesus, a rabbi? But don't miss this. Her breaking of the rules is one of the most beautiful things in this story. Because we actually get to see what it looks like to to displace your fear. What to do with your fear. What to do with your loneliness. What to do with your isolation. What does she do? She lays it at the feet of Jesus. Where does she take her shame? She takes it to Jesus. Where does she take her fear? She takes it to Jesus. Where does she take her isolation? She takes it to Jesus. And look at how he receives her in verse 34. And he said to her, daughter. Now, Jesus was just looking around in the crowd. She says something. So we just have to imagine that because Jesus is looking, he sees her. He he sees her. He's looking at her. Don't miss that. When's the last time that you like held eye contact with someone? It, it expo- like it exposes something in you. Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this is not just another face in the crowd to Jesus. To Jesus, she is valued. She is seen. She is known. With Jesus, she's no longer cut off. She is a daughter. She is brought in. And what came like a punch in the gut to me as I was pouring over this, even, even just today, is that Jesus received her. It's so simple. Jesus received her. The unclean. They're his. Which means the people that you and I call unclean, which are so often the people that don't look like us, that don't vote like us, that don't live in the same hood, like they don't live near us. They don't have the same political preferences as us. They're the ones that Jesus is straining to find. He's longing to see who has the faith that might be stirred up because his presence, his presence gives us the courage to do the culturally audacious thing. He's looking, he's straining to find those people who get it. So this isn't some cold, sterile transaction like we've made Jesus out to be. It's just, it's just right here and then I'm good to just do me. He's distant, he's far off. And we see that because Jesus calls her daughter. This is familial language because in Jesus, we are getting refamilied. That's what's going on. We don't like all of our family members. We don't agree with all of our family members, but we often say something like this, and I love them. Not but I love them, and I love them. Jesus is refamilying us. And then he says this, go in peace and be healed. Literally, you could just translate it, go into peace, live into wholeness, be restored, your faith has made you well. And I love that. And if it ended here, but this whole scene is an interruption. It's an interruption to, to Jairus' desperate plea for his daughter's impending death. This no-name woman shows up. And what Mark confronts me with, and I don't know how he confronts you with this and this, but um, I don't receive interruptions very well. And what I see in Jesus is that he just relates to time in a different way than I do. For Jesus, time's not a commodity to be leveraged. It's a gift to be stewarded. And the difference, it seems, is the yield. If Jesus kept on going, well, we, we'll get to what goes down with Jesus. But in him stopping, a woman is loosed from the pangs of isolation. She is made well and peace is spoken over her life and she is called a daughter by the Son of the Most High God. See, so the yield is just different. In the former, when it Time is a commodity. It's all about us. We are the end goal. But when it's a gift from God to be stewarded according to the giver of the gift, then the interruption is also a gift. It's a space where we get to rank others above ourselves. Jesus is inviting us into something radical, something different, something rooted in the nature of God who is every win. 
You could say it this way, he's inviting us into allegiance over convenience. Or to say it another way, he's inviting us into faith over transaction. We actually get to see this play out. Jump down with me. Verse 35, we read this. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And hold, hold on to that. Because this is, this is Mark's brilliance on display. The word there at the end, believe, it's the same word that's on Jesus' lips just a moment earlier when he says to the woman, your faith has made you well. The word there, faith and belief, it's this Greek word pistis, which is the language the New Testament was originally written in. So essentially Jesus is saying, Jairus, have faith. You just saw what I did. You saw the power of God. Stay with me. Only believe. Jesus' words here, they're not shallow, they're not empty, they're not just, just some sort of trite statement that an awkward person says in a moment of grief. No, his words are true. And then we, we read this, and he, he took the child, this is, this is Jesus, going up, dismissing the, the unnecessary grieving party, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went in where the girl was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately were overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. No magic trick, no, 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 no parlor tricks. Resurrection. Amazement. This is a whirlwind of a story, is it not? So let's just think back as we come to a close. Both figures, both central figures are women rather scandalous in and of itself, but to boot, they're unclean. The, the woman, because of her unceasing flow of blood for 12 years, and the 12-year-old little girl, because she's dead, both make you ceremonially unclean. And according to Leviticus 15, that's where Jesus ought to be. He ought to be unclean. But when the power of God shows up on the scene in the person of Jesus, the untouchable are touched and the unclean are restored. And don't, don't skew these words and, and hear me trying to say, okay, like let's loose the grips of, of a global pandemic and go out there and hug everyone. I, I am a touchy-feely person. Trust me, I'm ready for this. That's not what's going down here. This is about Jesus' presence giving us the courage to do the culturally audacious thing, which may mean staying away. And it may mean gathering and peacefully proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's for us 
to decide, for our conscience and our convictions around Jesus to actually weigh out. But I'm just sitting here wondering, will we see it? Will we actually see how Jesus is present for the gyruses and the unclean? Are we going to see how Jesus is, is present for the rich and the impoverished, for the black and the brown? Will we see that God wants to know us, to see us, to receive the bounds of his parental love? Like, will we see it? Will we meet his gaze as he's scanning the crowd and, and tell him the whole thing from beginning to end? Or will we turn in shame? See, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So that feeling of shame, that's not Jesus. That is not the spirit of Jesus. There's freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that is what Jesus has on offer. Because when Jesus shows up, when Jesus is present to us, something shifts and it gives us the courage to do this audacious thing which in a moment like this, it may just be praying, maybe confessing, but I just wonder, are we gonna see it? Or are we gonna laugh at the declaration of a resurrection hope? Will we entrust our whole self to him or will we dismiss him? See, when, when we look to Jesus, we see clear as day that sickness and death, they don't get the final word in God's good world, and yet sickness and death are alive in this world. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it in the like when we name the name of Jesus? I don't know. Perhaps we just look to Jesus and then we begin to embody the life of Jesus. Remember that line that the crowds were pressing in on him? Jesus put himself in the places where there would be discomfort. The call of Jesus comes to us and then draws us out of ourselves to those uncomfortable spaces. I hope that you are discomforted. I hope that you are unsettled by this moment. I hope that the resurrection is an offense to you. I hope so. Because Jesus, Jesus is big enough to take our fear. Jesus is big enough to say that it, it's not just a girl who's going to be raised. It's, it's, I'm going to actually take it all. I hope that we are unsettled in this so that we would actually begin to question, where do I take it? Let's, let's stop hiding. Let's no longer be silent. Let us move with grace and compassion to those who need it. And it may just be within the fault lines of our own heart that we need to receive grace so we might extend grace. But that grace is never meant to stay within us, church. It's meant to move through us. We came to Des Moines to be a part of a church that said in Des Moines as it is in heaven. And I have a fresh resolve in my spirit for that to be so. We're here in the wake in the church calendar of Pentecost. That's when the church came to life. Let us be the church who is alive to God in 
dead to sin. And let us be courageous enough because Jesus' presence is with us to name our sin. And so, on behalf of our church, I just repent. I confess that we have sinned. I don't know who we've all sinned against, and this is by no means a blanket statement. It's a hope, a specific statement that you hear one of the elders of this church saying to you, whoever you are watching, if you live in Des Moines, that we want, we want this. We want to be God's renewing presence here. And we are in this process of it being transformed measure by measure, degree by degree, into the glory and the image and the likeness of Jesus. But we are here. And by God's grace, we are not going anywhere because we have a resurrection hope that situates us here and we have a Jesus upon whom we can cast all of our fears, all of our loneliness, and all of our isolation. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would help us to see the humanity around us and fight for the glory of the image of God. Help us to embody your faithful presence, we pray. In your mighty name, amen.